Some time ago, I came across this story, evidently told by a native-born North Carolinian. Let me read it to you. A Texan, a New Yorker, and a North Carolinian were drinking their favorite beverage in a North Carolina saloon. The Texan drained his glass of tequila, threw the half-empty bottle up into the air, drew and fired his pistol, shattering the bottle out of the air to pieces. And the other two were shocked at the waste, and the Texan simply drawled, well, where I come from, we have plenty of that stuff already. The New Yorker, not to be outdone, finished his glass of wine and threw his bottle into the air, drew his pistol and fired it, shattering the bottle to pieces. And he looked over at the other two, you know, shocked men with an air of superiority and announced, well, back in Manhattan, we already have enough of the finest wines available. The North Carolinian drained his glass of sweet iced tea, the only recommended drink in this story, by the way, threw his glass into the air, drew his revolver, and shot the New Yorker. And said to the Texan, we have enough of those people already from here. You know, I didn't think that was funny either, actually. How many of you are here from New York? (laughs) The real test of fellowship, though, is do you cheer for North Carolina State? They're all looking for a new church this week anyway, so it doesn't matter. Well, if you lived during the days of, uh, of Christ, you would have discovered a gulf of division and prejudice and hard feelings between all kind of people. And just like today, only then it was for real, and many things exist today for real. In the days of Jesus Christ, there was one particular person who, because of his occupation, was especially hated. Anybody who had the job he had was automatically despised. They weren't allowed to step foot inside a synagogue. They were considered perpetually, ceremonially unclean. They were beyond, as it were, the grace of God. They couldn't testify in a court of law because their word was considered entirely untrustworthy. Religious leaders during the days of Jesus Christ probably would have shot them just as much as looked at them. But Jesus will just so happen to call one of them to become one of his twelve to the shock of everyone. His name was Matthew. And his occupation was that of a tax collector. You see, the trouble with Matthew was that he worked for the Roman IRS. If you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel by Luke as we begin this series of questions asked of Jesus and questions Jesus asked, you'll find a very brief retelling of their encounter, but it's rich as you dive in. The opening lines of This encounter occur in Luke chapter 5, and I want you to look over at verse 27. Jesus has just come from healing a paralyzed man, and Luke begins, after that, he went out, verse 27, and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth 
And he said to him, follow me. Now, before we we take a closer look at this very brief conversation, and it is rich, let me fill you in on Matthew's occupation to sort of set the scene. First of all, you might notice that he's called Levi here. There are some who believe that Levi was his Jewish name. He was Jewish. And Matthew is Roman name. There are many Bible scholars, and I would kind of throw my hat in with them, who believe that Jesus gave him the name Matthew just as he gave to Simon the name Peter. It would be a new name with a very significant meaning. Matthew means a gift from God. And he's not only about to receive a gift from God, but he's about to become a gift for God in the lives of so many people. But back to his occupation for a minute. During the days of Christ, there were a number of civil taxes that everyone had to pay Rome. There was the poll tax. That was a tax you had to pay just because you existed. I guess because you breathed Roman air, you had to pay uh, the poll tax. There was the ground tax, where you had to hand over, if you were a farmer, one-tenth of whatever your fields produced. And out of that, of course, Rome would pay that military stationed in your town, among other things. There was also an income tax that in the days of Christ was 1%. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Then there were taxes called Roman duties. These were taxes for all kinds of things I discovered, like taxes for docking your boat at the pier, taxes for importing and exporting uh, goods, taxes for traveling on Roman road systems. They even had a cart tax where you had to pay for each wheel of your cart. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, i got to tell you this. I got a phone call yesterday from my daughter who's home from the mission field. She and a girlfriend decided to you know, go to New York and, and see a few things and, and worship at the Brooklyn Tabernacle where they were earlier today. And, well, anyhow, they're on the highway, and the, she called me, and she said, Daddy, we're in New Jersey, and we didn't even think about the toll, and we don't have any cash. And she said, but don't worry. Don't worry, because we were able to drive through one lane that said, easy pass. <laughs> My friend told me, the girlfriend said, that they've developed technology, and they can take your picture, and they'll send you the fee in the mail. And I said, I don't know, honey. Hang on here. While I had her on the phone, I Googled, New Jersey easy pass. And I said, well, what do you know? You can drive through that booth without even slowing down, which is what they did. If you've joined Easy Pass beforehand and you have a sticker on your tag, yes, they have developed the technology, and yes, they have taken your picture. I said, honey, is there anybody behind you with blue lights flashing right now? I cannot wait to see what we get in the mail. <laughs> anybody here from New Jersey? Do you think they'll have compassion on missionaries? No, okay, I didn't think so. Where'd they get this idea? Well, toll roads actually go all the way back to the Romans. The Roman road system was actually an incredible development, but you couldn't drive on them for free. Jesus, in fact, referred to this just as a side note here. When he told his disciples in that uh, parabolically, he said, go and invite everyone from the highways and the byways. You remember that? That old translation? 
uh, or, or hedgerows, actually, for poorer people. You had the highway. It was paved. It was elevated. That's why it was high. And then you had the lower roads, the hedgerows. These were the uneven cart paths that were, you know, where the grass was just worn down and people had kind of made their way along on either side of the elevated highway. Jesus is effectively saying both the rich and the poor get invited to the banquet. That was his point. Well, you had, you had a cart tax and you had to pay your income tax and you had to pay your poll tax and your, and your export tax and your, your boat docking tax, all of that to the tax collector. Now, the Roman government would come into an area and they would assess the tax value of that area, much like uh, our town assesses the tax value of your home, property. And then what they would do is, is they would sell the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder in town. Now, this opened the door for incredible corruption. In fact, typically, the men involved in organized crime got the bid. They typically hired, we know from history, thugs and enforcers to make the collections. They were actually known during the days of Christ as gangsters. See, they had free reign from Rome to tax people more than Rome demanded. As long as Rome got whatever they assessed, these tax collectors could add to it and pad their pockets, keeping whatever extra they wanted to keep. And tax collectors in Jewish uh, regions, like here in Capernaum, were considered all the more evil because they were doubly treacherous. You see, what they had done is, and they're so hated because of it, they had, they had actually abandoned their people in the sense that they had accepted or, or they'd paid the bid so they could now turn around and on behalf of Rome tax their own people, extorting from them money whereby they became rich. They were so hated that they were never allowed them to darken the door of a synagogue and they usually didn't care. A Jewish tax collector like Matthew would have been known throughout his town as a thieving, traitorous, uncaring, impious, extortionist who had forsaken his people and abandoned the God of Abraham. They were about as low as you could get. In fact, rabbis during the days of Christ taught the people that if a tax collector set foot in someone's house, that everything and everyone inside that house were immediately unclean. Now, with that understanding, we're ready to appreciate the shock to the people around, as Jesus calls Matthew. Look again at verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. I love this, by the way. Jesus goes to his office. Jesus probably walked through the door in between two burly guys. You know, he's, he, he's effectively seeing the godfather of Capernaum. This guy is involved in organized crime, and he couldn't care less about people. Matthew, you follow me. Now, verse 28 tells us 
that he left everything behind, got up, and began to follow him. Now, I would agree with those that would fill in the the lines here and say that because Jesus has been in this area for some time that he has already become aware of them. Matthew was more than likely aware of the Zebedee boys. He'd been taxing their father and their fishing business. He'd no doubt heard of the miracles that were happening in town. He'd had his, uh, uh, his people supply him the information of this newcomer who was doing some interesting things. Jesus in this town had earlier healed a leper, and he'd just healed a a paralytic who's probably at this very time dancing his way back home. There's another clue here in this text. It says, Jesus noticed a tax collector. That's that's not a casual thing. Oh, oh, I I see a tax collector. That wasn't it at all. There there is intentionality here. In fact, the, the verb to notice is from... Theomai, it means to study, to, to carefully take note of. You could almost render it to, to stare, to look with attention. So get the picture. Jesus walks, probably passes by a couple of bodyguards, walks over to where Matthew's sitting. He's in his office. Matthew's behind his desk. And, and Jesus simply levels his omniscient gaze on Matthew, studies him quietly, just looks at him, looks through him. And I would imagine you could hear a pin drop in that office. We're not told, but we know the result, which would mean that in that moment, what Matthew knew about Jesus what he had heard about him. Maybe he had heard him personally. But Jesus knew what was in his heart. Matthew came to the God-granted realization that this man, Jesus, was more than a healer and a teacher. That he deserved to be his master. And Jesus effectively is saying, Matthew, act on that. Follow me. literally walk my road. Matthew grabs his coat, you know, and his keys, and dismisses these two guys he won't need anymore, and follows them. In fact, uh, the verb here for he left everything literally means he forsook everything. This man's been in crime most of his adult life. He turns his back on it all. In that moment, there is this revolutionary change. He forsakes everything and follows him. And I want you to understand, and to me this is the beauty of of Luke, including this for us here. Matthew is the last person in the world Jesus ought to be choosing. He's only going to pick 12. Why would he be one of the 12? I mean, you're calling a leading member of the mafia. You know, the guy that probably had his ring kissed whenever people came to see him. Lord, you don't know the trouble with Matthew. Jesus would have said, oh, I I know the trouble with Matthew. I know who he is. I know what he's done. But I know what he can become. Matthew's so blown away by his conversion and this call of Christ that 
the very next thing he does is what he knows to do best. He, he throws a party. Verse 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him in the house, and there was a great crowd, notice, of tax collectors <laughs> and other people. I love that. Matthew's gospel and Mark also record this brief conversation, this scene, and they just call them sinners. You know, you got tax collectors and other sinners that are there reclining at the table. So can you imagine this crowd? If you'd gotten an invitation, you'd have left your jewelry at home, okay? You see, what Matthew is doing is bringing Jesus into his world of acquaintances because he wants his world of acquaintances to meet Jesus. It's as if he's saying, hey, everybody, I want you to know that my life has, has changed. This man has changed my life. In fact, you ought to underline a key phrase in this verse. Notice again, it's easy to miss. And Levi gave a big reception for him, Jesus. I can just imagine Matthew saying, you know, I used to tax all of you guys, you know, down for driving your cars down the highway. Now I'm giving my life to follow this man. He's going to be my leader, and I'm going to go down whatever road he travels, and I'm willing to pay whatever price he asks of me. In fact, he will pay the ultimate price. He will eventually die a martyr's death. One author pointed out, though, that at this point, what's wonderful is that Matthew not only wants more of the presence of Christ, inviting him into his home, he's joining the purposes of Christ here. He's gathering a congregation for Jesus to preach to this night. Now, we're not told the content of the message that Jesus would have been preaching as they were reclining, and he is no doubt delivering to them the gospel. In fact, we know that because he's calling them to repentance. In fact, if you go down to verse 32, Jesus is going to respond in part by informing these spiritual leaders that he's not just there to have a party. He's not just there because, you know, believers ought to go to office parties and they should never be guilty of being a stuffed shirt. That is far off the mark. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is actually, notice, calling sinners to repentance. He's effectively looking at all of them and with grace and winsomeness by virtue of this invitation in a a world that would never show up at a synagogue either because they're all ceremonially unclean. And he says, listen, you've you've seen what's happened to Matthew. He's been heading in the wrong direction. I want you to turn around. That's what repent means. Confess. Join the path. He's delivering the gospel. Now, this reception has not gone unnoticed. Notice the key question that Jesus will answer. In fact, he's going to be asked this on more than one occasion. We'll deal with it just on this one occasion. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes, these are the religious elite, well-connected, they're the religious leaders of the day, began grumbling at his disciples, saying, they evidently don't have the courage to ask Jesus about it, so they grumble at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Why are you eating with them? See, in this, in, in, in this day and age, sharing a table was the same thing as sharing a life. It symbolized trust. It symbolized kinship. That's why you kept it to your family. That's why you stayed inside the circle. 
In fact, we know one of, uh, from history that, that uh, one of the ways the religious leaders and Pharisees in Jesus' day showed devotion to God was by never having any social contact with people who were not respectable or religiously affiliated with them. So they're scandalized. How can Jesus be eating with members of the mob? Doesn't he know the trouble with these people? I mean, you got problems with Matthew. Now you got a whole household of tax collectors and, and, a, and a host of sinners. You're overboard now. Jesus overhears them and delivers in verse 31 this brilliant answer. Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call good people, but sinners to repentance. I love this analogy in his wisdom. Jesus basically says, listen, I'm a doctor. And who do you think needs me most? Healthy people or sick people? I know the trouble with Matthew. He's terminally ill. In fact, he needs a heart transplant. I'm the only one able to perform the surgery. You see all these other people in here? They're also terminally ill. The truth is, they know they're sinners. In other words, they know they're in trouble with God. They know they have nothing to do with the God of Abraham. They know they're ceremonially unclean. They know they've never darkened the door of a synagogue. And you guys think you're perfectly healthy. So who would you hang around with? If you were the divine physician, and I am, Jesus could say, because if you recall, just hours earlier, I healed a leper. And I did more with the paralyzed man. I not only healed him, but I told him by virtue of his faith that his sins were forgiven. What a physician, by the way. Jesus effectively asks these leaders, tell me, who do you think needs me the most? Wouldn't you agree that it's Matthew and this house full of sinners? And of course, they're stumped and probably wondered who came up with the question as they scurried away. So one of the first questions delivered to Jesus in the gospel by Luke is answered with divine wisdom. Now let me pull from this scene two lessons, just these two conversations between Jesus and Matthew and Jesus and the Pharisees. Let me, let me give you two timeless challenges, primarily from Matthew's conversion. Number one, no unbeliever is beyond redeeming. No unbeliever is beyond redeeming. Jesus provides here a rather scandalous tale of redemption. It's going to have tongues wagging all throughout Capernaum. Matthew couldn't be happier, though. And I'm frankly marked by the courage of our Lord, who's a little older than 30 years of age, early in his ministry. He hasn't even called all of the twelve around him, but he's already standing alone. He's already facing the fire. He's already 
feeling the heat. He's already breaking down some of these societal barriers that the gospel will topple. He's already rattling the cages of those caught up in the religious status quo. See, Matthew is the most unlikely disciple. He had all the wrong connections and a horrible reputation. The Lord Jesus is going to ruin his, certainly, by associating with him. No. No, he won't. Matthew will prove to be a faithful disciple. In fact, he'll ultimately write his own gospel account that opens the New Testament called the Gospel of Matthew. He never did quit talking about Jesus. The first lesson is that there is no unbeliever beyond redeeming. The second lesson is this. No believer is exempt from reaching. If Matthew does it, none of us have an excuse. He's not saved more than a day, and he's planning his first evangelistic outreach. Now, he's not going to do the preaching. Jesus will take care of that. But he knows how to throw a party. And he's got his list of friends. And and you might think, well, you know, shouldn't he wait a while? (laughs) Shouldn't the Lord, you know, polish off some of those rough edges just a bit? I mean, somebody slow Matthew down. No. Let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Say so. Psalm 107, verse 2. We happen to have a wonderful divine physician. He makes office calls. He heals the sin sick on the first visit. And then he pays the bill. What a doctor. Wouldn't you tell people about that doctor too? So you have that, that excitement in Matthew. And you've seen it. You've seen similar courage, haven't you? Out of children, maybe your own. You know, they're fearless when they, when they get a little bit of the gospel. I've had so many testimonies of people who could sort of get around the gospel until they had a child. And the child grew up old enough just to begin asking questions. Little evangelists in the family. I love it. They don't understand why adults grow out of it. Maybe they don't pick up on it. In fact, I remember when my twin sons were in second grade, attending a public magnet school downtown Raleigh for a couple of years. Our youngest daughter was at the time in kindergarten. Marcia was expecting our fourth child. And one of my sons had to write a paper. It was a second grade project. And I remember you know, just being amazed. He said, Dad, I'm going to turn this thing around. I'm going I'm to give the gospel to my teacher. I said, okay. He, he, he turns the whole thing around and, and explains the gospel to his teacher in a very short paragraph, and he concluded the paper by writing, and if you want to get saved, call my dad. <laughs> I mean, imagine being a teacher, you know, getting a, getting a paper from a second grader who effectively says, you need to get saved, and I got the guy lined up you need to talk to. It's exactly what Matthew's doing. I don't really understand everything, but I've got a guy lined up for you who can do the talking. He didn't have all his ducks lined up. We'd be amazed at what he didn't know. Just like kids, they don't have it lined up. Their theology isn't fine-tuned. They've got the basics down. In fact, they've probably focused on some highlights. (laughs) 
<laughs> I had in my notes that I came across not too long ago, one of, one of our twins came from, from school, same school, still in second grade. And he said, hey, mom and dad, two guys got saved out on the playground during recess. And mom said, oh, that's wonderful. And I said, well, how long is recess? See, my theological skepticism was already kicking in. I don't think you can go through a catechism that quickly or the Romans wrote or whatever. He said, oh, it's about 15 minutes. I said, 15 minutes? That, that was kind of fast. Well, what'd you tell them? He said, well, you know, I was out there with these guys, my friends. He said, hey, hey, do you guys want to be able to fly one day when you die and not go to hell? And they said, yeah, we prayed they got saved. <laughs> I mean, he's got the highlights down. I mean, can you imagine telling somebody you know? I mean, you're going to do it with a little more sophistication and and, and a little bit more fine-tuned, but it's effectively the same thing. Hey, would you like to one day have a glorified body like Jesus? And would you like to avoid hell? I mean, those are some pretty good highlights. The responsibility to share the gospel is ours. The responsibility to save is God's. How are we doing? Like Matthew, you just introduced them to the great physician. In in fact, our lives, it just struck me that our lives ought to be a reception in his honor that we invite people into. We refuse to keep them to ourselves. The Savior who is ever ready and willing to eat dinner, to fellowship, to walk with sinners like you and like me. He saved us He healed our terminal condition, giving us immortality. And he's paid the bill in full. All we do is turn around and say to others, hey, we're on the path. We'd love for you to join us and walk with us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of this unlikely candidate and the wisdom of Christ who also reveals his passion, who came to seek and to save those who were lost, who's ever ready to meet those who would admit they're sinners and in need. May we be a little more courageous and bold like Matthew, like children. Help us to not keep you to ourselves this week. I have a little assignment for you. Just stay quietly before the Lord. Somebody told me from the choir a couple of days ago that Pastor Gary challenged the choir and orchestra to all write down the name of one person that they would begin praying for to be saved, to maybe have a personal opportunity to either invite them to church or to deliver to them the gospel. I just thought we ought to join them. So right there in the quietness where you sit, take, take 30 seconds or 60 seconds or so and think of one person 
Maybe in your neighborhood, maybe at work, maybe at school. You might not even have a good connection with them. We'll leave that up to God. You're just going to begin praying for them. You're not going to stay in your world. You're not going to keep Jesus to yourself. Asking God to open a door. Just crack it open. Mentally note that person's name or maybe even write it down in your notes or in the flyleaf of your Bible. And pray for an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. I'll wait just a moment. Let's sing just the refrain to that great hymn, And Can It Be. Let's just sing Amazing Love, How Can It Be. Here we go. Amazing Love. Amazing Love.